This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and today I am so, so stoked to welcome Rachel Nichols to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Where do we start with Rachel Nichols? Let's start with the fact that her name has been uttered on this podcast at least a dozen times before, mostly by her continuum colleagues and the showrunner. Rachel led the show as Kira, an ass-kicking, highly principled cop from the future who follows a group of terrorists back in time to present-day Vancouver. If you've listened to our past episodes with continuing alumni like Simon Barry, Luvia Peterson, Omari Newton, Richard Harmon, Stephen Lobo, Lexa Doig, Brian Markinson, and Jennifer Spence, you'll have heard that Rachel was the textbook definition of a generous and beloved number one. She set the tone both on and off the screen. Her impact on the Vancouver screen scene through the people she worked with is undeniable. If you only know Rachel from Continuum, then do you even know Rachel? Her <laughs> career journey is packed with memorable characters from a wide range of genres, from sci-fi to horror, from crime procedurals to comedies to all manner of genre entertainment. She was Alexa, the waitress who enjoys a birthday threesome with Samantha and Richard in an iconic episode of Sex in the City until she calls Richard daddy and is unceremoniously ejected from the bed. She was possibly the worst babysitter ever seen on screen in The Amityville Horror, a role for which she was nominated for Best Frightened Performance at the MTV Movie Awards and Choice Movie Scream Scene at the Teen Choice Awards. She starred as Ashley Seaver in Criminal Minds, as an FBI special agent whose father was a serial killer, and as the brilliant Rachel Gibson in Alias. We saw her as a Gestapo officer, Martha Stroud, sworn to guard and observe Chela Horstall's Helen Smith in The Men in a High Castle, and, this is my daughter's favorite, as Angela Azarath, the duplicitous mother of Rachel slash Raven on Titans. This year, she was revealed as the woman who ran down Eddie in a million little things. What sense can we make from a cast of characters as diverse as Rachel's? What does that jaw-dropping filmography tell us about who Rachel is as a performer and as a human being? Well, today, we will try to make sense of Rachel Nichols' career journey and stellar reputation, and hopefully get to the heart of what makes this versatile and beloved actress tick. Rachel Nichols, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I love that you've, you've had so many of my fellow continuum cast and, and, and you know, and crew, obviously, um, on your podcast. That's so awesome. I have had a, 
I've had Roger Cross. I forgot to mention Roger Cross. I've had Roger Cross Ooh, as well. You've had them all. I mean, Pretty it's much. so cool. I, can, I almost can do an entire suite. Um, I think I still, I need Victor. Um, and I need, who else do I need? Definitely Victor. You need Eric. You need Eric. I need Mason. Eric. Yeah. Um, there's a few more. There is a few more. Uh, but pretty much, uh, I mean, Continuum was a series where I visited the set a few times. And, you know, I remember being a longtime sci-fi fan, watching it and being like, oh, my God, this is this is awesome. It's got a cool woman at the center and it's Vancouver. It's Vancouver. Also, I knew Steve Lobo from when I was in high school. We did Grease together. So <laughs> that was also pretty rad. <laughs> my goodness. I just, I, I mean, I, I love, the whole, the whole cast was at my wedding. I mean, like, that's mm-hmm. how close we all were. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Steve, uh, Steven's character is so, Kellogg is so, so diametrically opposed to exactly everything Stephen embodies in real life. Yeah. It just shows you how good an actor he is because Kellogg and Stephen Lobo are eons apart as far yeah. as personality, ethics, morals, and all of that goes. So he's fantastic. Yeah, Lobo would be scared of Kellogg, I think. <laughs> oh, for sure. We all are scared of Kellogg. <laughs> okay, and we are going to talk, and I promise you, Continuum fans, I think they're called Numb Nuts. Num nuts, right? Yeah. But with two U's, new new yes. newts. Um, new newts. Uh, we will speak more about Kira and about Continuum and Rachel's experiences uh, embodying that fucking kick-ass. Oh, you can swear on my podcast. That fucking kick-ass hero. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of other stuff that I want to touch on. Um, beginning with, I guess your response to my thesis statement, you know, when you hear yourself described in the way that I've described you and hear, you know, and I only touched the surface with, you know, the rules, uh, you know, what does that evoke in you? I mean, it brings back a lot lot of of memories. I mean, going, going back to, to sort of the beginning of my career and how I began and, and I, I think about it often. There are certain things, and I can't, this is a spoiler alert for a Netflix movie I did, so I can't really get into details, but mm-hmm. certain, there's, there's, a certain, there's a certain theme that runs through my career in a lot of the genre stuff that I've done. Um, and I always, because you mentioned a couple of things, and I lo- love that your daughter loved Rachel slash, well, me playing Angela, Rachel slash yes. Rachel's mom. Because that, that brought me back to Toronto, and that brought me back to, I'm supposed to look dirty and gross and and I loved that part and I just yeah. that was but it it like you sort of tick on everything and then Alias was such an incredible experience um Jennifer Garner is the nicest person on the planet um and I had the best time on that show and that was a really that was a big deal for me to be on that show so that brings me back to like 25 year old Rachel I think and yeah. I'm 41 so it just, there's a span, you know, yeah. there's a span. So I love, and I like speaking to people because they often pick out different things in my career to sort of give the thesis of or, or give the intro to. And I always love to see what, what, what people pick out and what they, what they mention. And so it just, it, every time you say a different role that I've done, it takes me back to the time and place that it happened. And it's, it's a nice walk down memory lane. Yeah. Of all the roles that, I've mentioned, and also that I haven't mentioned, <laughs> which one is closest to who you are? 
oh, who I am. Well, I mean, my I am most not. I'm most proud of my work on Continuum as Kira Cameron. I got to play her for four seasons. And we, I mean, aside from the fact that I'm contrary to popular belief, I have not traveled from the future. I am not a future CPS officer. Don't believe officer. it. Lies. Uh, Total lies. We have, we, have, uh, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of similarities. And I got to bring a lot of myself into her and, because I, I got to play her for four seasons. And they're good and bad. I will say we're both very stubborn. Um, that's, you know, one at the top of my list. And we also, um, we don't suffer fools and we don't take any shit. And that's Rachel and Kira both. Um, but we're loyal and we will throw down for anybody that we love. I always joke with my best girlfriends, as long as you don't sleep with my husband or kill someone I love, I'll help you bury a body. Yeah. And that's how here is. So since I got to play her for so long, I do feel that's the accurate response because we were really sort of melded by the end of, of the four seasons that we were together. And it's a really special show and a really special role for me to play. Yeah. I'm going to put a pin in Kira. Yeah. Um, because I want to go back in time. Oh, man. Every time I do, I do one of these time travel things, I'm like, okay, what's your time travel vehicle of choice? Um, and then I get the continuum dudes on and they're like, well, obviously the, like the, I forget what it's called, but it's like the continuum, like um, festive orange. That the orange. <laughs> yeah. Ball thing. Yes. <laughs> but I want to, Bring us back in time to a moment in your childhood that gives us a glimpse into the actress that you were to become. Oh, well, the funny thing is, is I, looking back on it now, it's hilarious. I did, what I always tell people is being, you know, an actor, a musician, a model wasn't, didn't seem really possible being from a, you know, small town in, in Maine. It just, didn't seem possible um so I did I did a play once with the Missoula Children's Theater it was a non-speaking role and I got in I was playing a doll and I had another doll um doll friend on either side and we got the giggles during the first act and we got yelled at by the director who was like you're supposed to be not you have no lines and you're not supposed to be laughing and so then the next time I was on the stage um I was in junior high school and um, we were doing a class, a class play, and all the boys dropped out at the last minute because um, drama wasn't cool. It wasn't cool. And we were doing, it was a, it was a, I don't remember the name of it, but it was, it was a play about a football team that has to pass the final exam on the U.S. president, so they can't go to the big game, blah, blah, blah. But all the guys dropped out. So I, as the most spindly, scrawny, gangly, I mean, I've barely grown into my body now. Um, I played a football player. And I've never been able to find footage from that. I know it's out there. The pictures are out there. But it was one of the funniest, most funniest things I had ever done because it was pure physical comedy because I had no idea what I was doing playing a football player in the 11th hour of this class play. That being said, um, that was kind of it for my growing up um, dr- drama and acting. Um, but I think it was always, I, th- I think it was always in me. I just needed it to sort of be woken up and um thank you columbia university and new york city and being in the right place at the right time and Mm. um because i was never i was never super confident i had very low self-esteem growing up i I was very booky very bookwormish um i got picked on a lot i got bullied a lot 
Um, I mean, I was also so naive and I, in high school. I just, I just wanted a boy that would take me to the football game on Friday night and kiss me on the forehead, which I thought was the cutest thing ever. And no high school boy really thinks that at all. Um, so, yeah, I think everything sort of changed for me when I, my parents dropped me off in New York City and I went to college in, um, at Columbia. And then I went, when my, my mom dropped me off, this is probably a pivotal, a pivotal moment. A TSN turning point, if you will, if you're a hockey fan, um, as I have to be because I married a good Canadian boy. So a TSN turning point was my mom and dad dropped me off in New York City. And my mom just looked at me and she said, nobody here knows you. You can be whoever you want to be. Nobody here knows you. And I remember a light bulb going on in my head thinking, holy crap, my mom's right. Nobody knows that I used to get made fun of or I was like super gangly and awkward and super shy. I can be, I can be whoever I want. Nobody here knows me. And I, I think that was, that's, that's what I remember most about the childhood turning point. Wow. And then you got your education a lot by being in New York in the way that, that New York will school you. You got schooled by New York. Yeah. Can you tell me about what some of the discoveries you, you made about yourself, you know, in, in those early years that especially lead you to, I'm assuming with every actor that there's a moment where you're like, <clears throat> I'm an actor now, you know. <laughs> Did not happen like that for me. I, no, uh, it doesn't happen no. like that for most people. <laughs> it's just me and my idea of being obsessed with actors, thinking that's what I, happens. Um, I, <laughs> so about two months into, um, into uh, Columbia undergrad, I told my parents, I said, I love it here. I want to come back. I want to go to, I want to, my dog is snoring. Lolo, stop snoring. Stop snoring. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, I said, I want to come back and go to business school here. My parents said, yeah, good for you. You're paying for it. We'll do undergrad, but you want to go back for grad school, you got it. And I was working at Abercrombie & Fitch in the South Street Seaport at this point, and I thought, hmm, that's not going to pay my way through Columbia Business School. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being in the right place at the right time, and I got stopped um, by a scout, and you know they wanted me to model, and I thought, okay, that'll help me maybe save some money for graduate school. And then from there, I started modeling and then I started doing commercials. And then the commercial division said, do you want to act? And I went, wait, sure, cool. And so they sent me an audition for Sex in the City. And I got the job, that one episode that you mentioned, it's called A Vogue Idea. Whoa, and whoa, sorry, what? Yeah. That was your, your first time basically acting not in a commercial on set? Yeah, yeah. I I had been uh, oh my god model at bar in that Winona Ryder Richard Gere movie Autumn in New York. But I was model at bar. I was just sitting at the bar as an extra, basically. So yeah, this is my first my first big my first audition. I mean, I walked into the audition and Martha Coolidge was directing. Michael Patrick King was there. I didn't know if I was supposed to look into the camera or at the person or eating with me. And I got the job, and then I got to set, and I was like, what do I do now? Huh? What? <laughs> It happens now. Um, and I had all my scenes with, with Kim Cattrall. And um, at six, six in the morning, because um, I arrived at set, at six in the morning, I, I looked at her and she was in the makeup chair. chair. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to go tell her I've never acted before. And she might really hate me, but I got to warn her. I got to be honest. I'm so nervous because it was also one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Oh. And I, yeah. I can't tell you how lovely she was. 
she was so kind to me. She could tell that I was nervous. And she said, honey, we're going to have a great time. And she was so patient. I didn't even know how to hit a mark. I mean, I was obviously the greenest of the greenest of the green. And she, she made that experience so wonderful. I left Silver Cup Studios that day after shooting all four of my scenes um, in one day, which was overwhelming. Um, I left there going, I had a great time. I'd like to do more of this. I need to start taking acting classes. Let's go. But if she hadn't been as wonderful as she was, I probably would have left there pretty depressed, cried, and been like, man, this isn't for me. I'm not good at this. Okay. What people cannot see is my brain exploding right now. Um, Because, one, I can't believe that the actress that I watched on screen, you know, literally go after Samantha's boyfriend, um, had never done that before, had never acted. I'm not talking about you going after somebody's boyfriend, you know, and that too, what I've heard about, I wonder like, is there a connection between that early experience with Kim Cattrall, you know, and, and, and how lovely she was, you know, and being like one of the top people on the call sheet and then how you treated people, you know, when you were on top of the call sheet, you know, at Continuum, because all I heard from so many people, people who've guested on the show, the directors and, and, you know, your castmates that you were such a lovely number one. Like, is there, is there a connection, do you think, between that early experience on Sex and the City? I think there's a connection between that and also by my time on Alias, because mm. I watched Jennifer Garner be the lead of a show and be generous and kind and so accepting. I was, I was joining the show in the fifth, fifth season. It was very established. And sometimes when you join a show that's had many seasons, everybody does their own thing and you're the newbie and you're not really included. Yeah. And she was just so lovely. And I remember thinking, if I ever am the, the lead of anything, I need to remember how nice she was. Because we all have our bad days. And I have something called the midday asshole wake up call where if I've been kind of cunty in the morning um, because I'm not a super morning person, I am now because I got a dog that I have to walk. But mm-hmm. I, if I ever had like, you know, snapped at anyone and I would go, I call it the midday asshole wake up call and go to them and be like, I was a real dick this morning. I am so sorry. And it didn't happen to me, but I find out, I find that you always have to apologize for being a dick. I just think that's how it works. But yeah, I just remember thinking I need be like Jennifer. Be, that was my mantra. Be like Jennifer. Be like Jennifer. Be, Be like Jennifer. Jennifer. Pregnant when I worked with her too. I mean, for crying out loud. So yeah. yeah, I think I think my first experience with Kim and having her and Martha Coolidge being so generous and patient and willing to know to help me learn and to not you know be upset or annoyed with me. I think that really led me to be where I am. And and then secondly working with Jennifer Garner for a year and just yeah. seeing how gracious she was and just thinking, be the nice one. Always be the nice one. You're going to have bad days. Everybody does. Be the nice one. And if you have a bad day, apologize. Don't yeah. be dead. Own it. Cause we do. Ha- I love that. It, like it, it really, it costs nothing to, n- to not be an asshole. It costs nothing to be kind. And yet the cost of being an asshole, like you could hurt a lot of people. Like if Kim Cattrall had been a diva and everybody had been screaming at you, or if, you know, Jennifer Garner had been a nightmare, you know, like who knows what would have, what would have happened, right? For, for you and where would you be? Yeah. I don't think I'd be here. I mean, I, I did not get my, my degree in, in acting from Columbia. I did get my degree in economics and psychology and 
I would have been, I would have said to myself, you know what, this, this isn't for me. I don't like being around mean people or bullies or people that belittle me or make me feel as though I'm bad at my job. This isn't fun. I, I, I will, this is not for me then. Yeah. So what kind of career did you want then when you first started out as an actor and, and how is that different from what you want now? Initially, I just wanted to work. Yeah. And I, my the first movie I ever did was the prequel to Dumb and Dumber called Dumb and Dumber. And um, I took, I, Columbia was great because I got in Atlanta and it was during my senior year, but I was, and production was great too, because I was able to fly back to take my midterms, fly back to take my finals, and um, obviously, and I graduated. And so at the beginning, I was sort of wide-eyed, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as most people are. I will never forget the first premiere and all the flash bulbs, and I had flown my brother out, because my brother was still in Maine, and he thought, well, if my sister can be an actress, I can be an actor. And he came out, and he saw the flash bulbs, and he went, no, this is not for me. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. And nope, 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 hard pass, hard pass. Because they wanted him on the red carpet. So it was me, and he was like, nope, nope, please, no. Um, so I think the beginning was just, I just, I wanted to work. I wanted to learn. I was taking class. I, I haven't, I've always had a, a wonderful acting coach. I had two two acting coaches in my life. Um, and I work with them very, very uh, consistently. But then it moved, and as I was sort of de- developing my a little bit of a name for myself, and I was sort of, you know, coming out of the woodwork, and I was in my 20s, and I wanted, you know, I wanted this, this, the sexy characters. I wanted to be, you know, Scarlet in G.I. Joe or Gala in Star Trek. I, I, I wanted to be the, those. And then um, as I've gotten older, now I want to play, I mean, I, I want to play the woman that paralyzes Eddie on the million. Oh. <laughs> but I want to play, you know, Angela in Titans. I want to play, when I got to, to set the first day to play Angela, the hair and makeup department said, okay, production wants to make you look really bad. And I said, okay. And they said, no, but like no makeup, greasy hair. I said, okay, that means less time for me in the makeup chair, more time for me to sleep. And I think just now I like to play those roles. I don't need fake lashes or skin tight clothes I want to play any any and all kind of roles where I think is when I was younger I was much more intimidated by those and I just felt like I should fit in this sort of mainstream kind of thing so there is something to be said about growing older and not caring oh when I turned 40 I I adopted the hashtag uh hashtag 40 af and just like and I have found being in my 40s and surrounding myself with like all my friends are in their 40s or 50s it's i i feel so powerful now in a way that i don't Mm -hmm. think i did you know when i was a teenager in the 90s or you know in 20 something early aughts right like that now i have a confidence and this not giving a shit still caring about other people and caring about my people you know but literally i'm not going to be bothered i just want to do stuff that i enjoy i want to celebrate the people that i love and it's not going to be weighed down with bullshit that's hashtag 40 af yeah, and I completely agree. And also, my whole life, I have gravitated toward older female role models. Yeah. And I have, I mean, I have my friend Stephanie in Vancouver, and, well, my friend Christine York, and I, she, I, 
uh, her two boys, I kind of, they were a little bit older than I was, but I was really close to her son, Jamie, and I used to go over to their house all the time. And she's in her 70s now, but she was just, she's an artist. She's flaming red hair and she's got the best story. And I adored her and admired her. And then um, I did a little tiny film called A Bird of the Air many years ago at this point. Um, and this woman, Margaret Whitten, directed um, A Bird of the Air, and she became my mentor. Mm. I just, she had this gorgeous like, gray and white hair, and she was taking no shit from anybody. Um, and if you ever saw that movie, Major League, mm-hmm. she, played, she plays the redhead that inherits the team, and all the guys hate her. Oh. That, that's Margaret Whitten. Yes. So she directed this this movie, and I um, I became so 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 close with her. So I've always gravitated toward these really strong, fiery, older women, and I believe them being as confident as they were. As as I get older, I thought I can be confident like them. I can you know I can grab the you know bull at the horn and just. Yeah, I could do this. But a lot comes with, with getting older and then seeing how people get older. Like, you know, I've I've been lucky to be surrounded by very strong, crazy, funny, awesome women that I've yeah. been looked up to. Yeah, who shine their light on you and then you shine shine it right back up at them. That's what we hope. And maybe I can shine it onto someone younger than me that wants to hang out with an old broad. <laughs> Okay, somebody is basically the same age as you. Let's let's not. <laughs> let's not. <laughs> no, I mean the net, the Netflix movie that I did um, just this spring. Um, I became friends with Peyton List, and she plays my younger sister Kiki. Um, she is the one from. Um, there are two Peyton Lists, which is which is great. She's the young one. She's only twenty three, mm-hmm. and her and I. I got along with her so well because she's very grounded and she's very smart and she's adorable and she's fun. And I just thought, oh, it's happening for me. I get to, I get to be the, the old older friend and I'm friends with a 23-year-old and she likes me. And it was, <laughs> she likes me. She really likes me. <laughs> Sally Field and her taking your Norma Ray Oscar or whatever. Say you like me. You really like me. And, and yet, if you had mentioned that to Peyton and the Sally Field reference, would she have gotten it? Yeah. <laughs> I think she would know who Sally Field is, but I don't think she's ever seen her speech. Yeah. From the Academy Award. <laughs> um, Cobra Kai. That's what she's on. Cobra Kai. I almost said Tiger King, and I'm like, that's not right. No, Cobra Kai. Okay. Okay. Oh, great show. Um, what would you say are are some of the challenges that you faced in your career journey and how have you overcome them? Um, I'm assuming I have, I'm assuming you've overcome them. Yeah. I mean, it, again, they vary with age. Um, being a people pleaser was mm. always a big part of my life. And I definitely made some decisions on sets that were unsafe, but I was being asked to by directors or producers or studios to do things I wasn't comfortable with. I felt as though I had to, yeah, um, or as though they would say, "Oh, well, then she's difficult to work." I was very scared of that stigma that would come along. Like I said, "Well, I don't, I don't think this stunt is, is safe for me to do because I'm driving a car really fast with real handcuffs on and in the dark, and there's cameras on each set. This seems like a bad idea." Yeah, but I would do. And 
as and I had some I've had some very strong people that I that I've worked with who actors that were much more seasoned than I was when we worked together. And um, they protected me hmm. and would say, Rachel, you don't have to do this. You have a stunt double. They're pushing you to do this. Don't do it. And I had one actor who sat on the hood of a car that production wanted me to drive. And he went, you let the stunt team and the safety team go because we were running low on time. You're going to have her. This is way at the beginning. You're going to have her drive. No, I'm not getting off this car until you call them back. I'm not doing it. And that really, to me, it still makes me want to cry because I'm so grateful to him because he was he put his foot down for me. Yeah, and he literally put his body on the line. Literally, literally put his body literally. down. And he was like, you don't take this shit. And while you're working with me, I'm going to be sure you don't take this shit. Yeah. And he goes, if, if it's my reputation, if they want to say I'm the difficult one, fine, but don't. And so now again, like I said earlier, neither Kira nor Rachel suffer fools. I, I, I can be very vocal and I do like to be a producer on things because I do like to know my crew and I do like to defend my crew and protect my crew and to make sure everybody's being, everything's safe. I mean, especially with uh, obviously what's going on with, with the whole Alec Baldwin and Russ thing. I mean, that I've handled a lot of weapons in my, it's all, I want to be part of all of it because I'm very, very, very protective. So I think as I've gotten older, I've had, <laughs> I've had the chance to be 40 AF. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And protect the people I love and defend the people I love. But also, I'm not scared anymore of the threats. Or, And also, a lot of it comes with nude scenes. Mm. I've never, it's not something that I ever, that I ever wanted to do. And I got, I got pressured. Now, it's nothing, it's something I know, I have never said yes to. I have had sex scenes, which, I mean, as you probably know, are like, the most awkward things to shoot anyway. So, they're not <laughs> sexy at all. But I got in, I, I had to put my foot down with a movie that wanted me to be nude and very badly, even though they'd signed my nudity writer. And I went, no. And they threatened me. They said, we'll, we'll tell everybody that you're hard to work with. And I said, okay. And I did the movie and I wasn't naked. I, I, always said, I am shocked because you always hear about people have the worry that oh, people, uh, people are going are gonna to talk and say that I'm hard to work with. But to actually have somebody from the production say to you, we're going to tell everybody. Like, I wonder, do you, th do you think that kind of thing is still said now in the aftermath, you know, of, I mean, you know, of, of the, I don't say it's the aftermath of the Me Too movement, but, you know, since the, the, the groundswell of awareness, right, right. you know, do you think that that kind of thing would I still be said to an actor? I wish I could say no. Yeah. But I can't. Yeah. It hasn't been said to me any in anything I've done lately at all whatsoever in decade, over a decade. Um, and I wish I could say what I will say, and this is terrible. I still think the younger, actually, we have a lot of strong, really strong, vocal, younger actors and actresses out there that speak out against this kind of thing but the bullying still exists i believe mm. and um the threat is still there of well this could potentially hurt your career um but i think it's dissipated mm. considerably and i think because of the ramifications um that we've seen sort of sweep through with the me too movement i would like to think that uh, people putting 
actors and actresses in those positions would be thinking harder about it and maybe less inclined to do it. Yeah. But I can't say that it's abolished. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I, you, you've confirmed exactly what I was uh, suspecting, but you know, there's, there's a part of me, well, there's one part of me that's like, okay, well, at least we're not where we were. But then the other part of me is like, will it ever be over? Will it ever, will we always have to deal with, with, you know, um, gender-based, sex-based, and honestly, all, like any marginalized community, right? You know, a power struggle with, you know, sure. with the people in charge, like threatening their livelihood if they don't do, yeah. you know, whatever that's being asked. That's not I reasonable. think it will consider, I think it will consider, get considerably better. I don't think we're ever going to revert back to like the casting couch where, Hey, you'll get this role if you have sex with me in my office. Um, I would hope so. And I would hope that any, that any, anybody, any woman or man, and it happens to men too, which I, I think needs to obviously be said across the board. Cause it's not just, mm. it's not just women. It's mm. not just when you hear stories about male directors preying on, you know, young male actors. I mean, it happens to both sexes. Yeah. Um, but I would like to think that given the wave, given the Me Too movement, given the support that people who have come out have received, um, I would like to think that... <laughs> I was like, who's coming in? You heard <laughs> that. That was my husband opening the door very slowly, which made it extra creaky, and to let, <laughs> and then to let the cat in, one of the cats... Um, who is now sniffing the power cord. It's yeah, going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah, uh, I'm leaving that in. I, I'm just going to leave that in because this is what it means to record during COVID. Light. Um, no, I would just like to say that I believe with everything that's happened, that people that were before bullied or pressured now will have the strength to say no mm. and come out and be honest about what happened rather than being forced into doing something they don't want to do. I think the support system is growing yeah. and it has been growing immensely. And I, all I can hope, because like I said, I'm, you know, older now, I have had to go to blows with some people, the younger generation. I want them to feel that there's a safe space for them to fully and freely come out and be honest about everything and anything that happens without fearing ramifications. And I think we're on the road to that. I, God, I hope so. All right, numbnuts, noomnuts, we're going to talk a bit more about Continuum and about Kira. And Kira's arduous journey. What did you like about Kira? It's clear you like Kira. We all yeah. liked Kira. She was difficult, just, but we liked her. You know, she's very, she's very headstrong. The thing that I liked about her is she... She's totally kick-ass and she's completely powerful and she, um, she really, you know, believes in herself and trusts in her instincts, but there is a vulnerability to her. And I mentioned this, this a lot in, um, when people ask about characters that I choose to play. And I love the strong female character, of course, but I love for there to be a bit of vulnerability. And obviously she's transported from 2077 to 2012, which is the first season of the show when she's left a husband and a son in the future. And she doesn't know how or if or when she'll get back, but she's determined to see this thing through with liberate. She's determined to put an end to it. And one of my favorite things about her is through the course of the four seasons, she arrives when she arrives in 2012, her thought process is very black and white. Liberate is bad. They must be stopped. I'm the one here to do it. Black and white. Mm -hmm. 
as the series progresses, some of her mind changes and she's open to new ideas and is liberate doing all that, all the bad things. And is the future all that good? And so she's allowed to question herself and she's allowed to take this journey from being very black and white to thinking, oh, wow, this is a sea of gray. And we've got to sort of cherry pick. And she's open to that too. She doesn't just go headstrong into um, black or white forever. And I, I, I love that about her because it's the, it's the surrounding, whether it's, you know, Victor Webster's character, Carlos, or all the, all the members of Liberate or um, Inspector Dillon, all of these different people come into her life and sculpt her belief system and change her belief system. And I thought that was, that was really special. I just wish we could have done it for more seasons because there was a lot. I wish so as well. How do how do you feel looking back? It's been a few years now about where Kira ended up and about the ending. It still breaks my heart. Yeah. Oh, oh. And I remember talking to Simon because, you know, they had wanted to put the kibosh on it after season three and we fought and we fought and we fought and we got yeah. six episodes for season four. And it, we were grateful for it because it was going to allow us to at least wrap up the series a little bit. We had to do it right quick. I mean, we had to do stuff real quick. And I remember reading the last script and just, it broke, it broke my heart. And I, the hardest scene I ever, ever had to shoot was season two, episode five. I believe it's the, it's the episode where I say goodbye to Sam. He comes in hologram for that and I, I don't have children. I love children. I don't have children. But that, that scene today, I could, I could cry right now thinking about it because that just ripped me apart. So when we get to the end of Continuum and Kira gets to see that Sam is with other Kira, it breaks her heart, but he's okay. That's the other thing. Like she was able to help make sure the future was okay and her son is okay. And that is much more important than Kira one, how she feels. She's devastated, but she did what she wanted to do and she wouldn't have had it any other way. Yeah. Getting worked up and sad, (laughs) just thinking about it. The seat in the fountain and then you're looking, it's all very sad. Um, who, Who are some of your favorite scene partners to play with on Continuum? Well, you know, Brian Markinson. If you can make my, Brian Markinson break in a scene, if you get the giggles with him, if you're never coming back. There's that the point of no return. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love, I love my, I, I mean, I loved everybody on that show. I, some of my fight scenes that I had with Luvia were so much fun because um, she was just, you know, she was, she was really, really new to like the industry and. She was originally um, going to have a smaller role, but then she was so kick-ass. And, yeah. um, she just was gung-ho to do anything and everything, and I loved that. Because when you're in the action and you're in the nitty-gritty and you're rolling around and, yeah, you're bumping and you're bruising, and some people will just say, I have a stunt double for this. I'm not doing it. But Luby will do – she she did one thing. They, were, they said, would you jump off the staircase? And I went – no, I don't even have good knees. And I was younger at this point. Luffy goes, well, do it. Luffy, I love you. Um, and then, you know, I, Carlos and, and Kira obviously have a very special relationship. And um, Victor and, and I had a 
like a great relationship. We were really good friends. I loved him. I loved that they never went into the like, ooh, romance. We're going to do the Carlos and Kira romance. They didn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and then also, I mean, I can't say enough good things about everybody, but then I do remember Eric Knudsen. I, I went out one night and this was the first season of the show. And I didn't really know, I didn't know anybody in Vancouver. And I just went to local Earl's or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was Earl's. Um, and I just sat down and I saw Eric at another table all by himself. And he had his sides and he was just going, reading, 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 reading. And I went over and I said, do you want me to run lines with you? He goes, no, 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 I have a process. I say each line 18 times. And by the time we shoot it, that's what I've heard 18 times. And he was so, he was so Alex Sadler in that moment. Um, and he, he never, he, he, like, he like never flubbed a line. He was so in tune with it. And working with him was just, I was in awe of him because he, you know, those lines that he had to say. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, wait, but I do have a follow-up question though. So did you just go back to your table to eat by yourself and then he sat alone at his table or did you at least? Oh yeah. I left him totally alone. Yeah. I left him totally alone. And, um, I think, I think when he was done, he came over and sat down with me and had a beer or something. But, um, when we started live tweeting continuum episodes, I would always go to his place and we, the two of us, when we invited everybody else was invited and anybody that could come, um, or anybody that could come was more, more than welcome. But there were a couple of times it was just me and <laughs> me and Eric and we had the best time because it was just, it was just fun. So yeah, he's, he's special. I don't, he, I don't, I have no idea where he is. I haven't heard or seen, seen him in a while. So I, I hope he's okay. Yeah. I have no idea either. Um, yeah. I would love to talk to him so I can complete my continuum suite. I know. I mean, I love, I love, like as a fan, I love continuum, but I think what was also incredible to me, even at the time, was this confluence and concentration of supremely talented people on all aspects of production, you know, right from, from Simon Barry's brain, you know, on down through stunts, through wardrobe, through, and, you know, so the fact that I've had so much of the cast on the show is not just about the fact that I'm uh, this huge continuum fan, although I totally am, you know, it's also because it was like a lightning in a bottle situation as far as having, that kind of talent. A lot of Vancouver talent featured prominently as well, which was, you know, a big deal for the city and to have Vancouverites and Vancouver playing Vancouver, you know, was incredible. Well, you know, um, I don't, I don't know if you know this. Um, I became, I met, I'm, I became a permanent resident of Canada. Yeah. Um, the second or third season up until that point, I was the only non-Canadian on the entire show, writers, crew, directors, everybody was Canadian. And then when I became a permanent resident, it was a hundred percent Canadian content. And I can't tell you how many people say, we're just so happy that you're calling Vancouver, Vancouver, because Vancouver, you can walk up down the street in downtown Vancouver and you can see a cab that says Boston, a cab that says New York, a cab that says Philly. Uh, and people were just so excited. And it was really, really gratifying that people were so excited that we were saying Vancouver was Vancouver because it doesn't yeah. matter that much. You ready to it's play true. some favorite things? Yes, I'm excited about this. 
So it's not really much of a game. It's really more, I'm going to ask you what your favorite thing is of a thing. And then you say it, but it also, we had Tom O'Pennicott on and he was just blurting out words and then they were not his favorite things. They were just words. So you actually right. have to like stand by. Oh, Tom. <laughs> All right. You've got your thinking face on. Okay. Got my thinking face on. Favorite karaoke song. These boots are made for walking by Nancy Sinatra. Oh, such a good one. I'm also toned up, so I have to choose an easy one. <laughs> Favorite Vancouver shot series, past or present, that you haven't appeared in? Ah, oh, nerds. <laughs> uh, oh, no. But now see, now see, I'm, oh, I did love the L word. And the original series shot there. Mm. I did love uh. that shit. Oh, you yeah. would have been so good. Oh, man. <laughs> we <laughs> were robbed of the chance. <laughs> Favorite midnight snack? Oh, I all... It's Oof. always it's going to be... Okay, so one of my favorites, but I don't allow myself to have it very often is I take a jar of chunky peanut butter, the mm-hmm. shitty kind, not the healthy kind. Mm-hmm. And I take um, some raspberry sorbet and a spoon. And I just go sorbet, peanut butter, in the mouth. Sorbet, peanut butter, in the mouth. It's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich oh. without the bread. And there's a Whoa. cold. And I and love it that out. it's the crunchy, yes, so that you get that, the texture. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Genius, like many of the characters that you played. <laughs> Oh, and just on a side note, anybody who's seen Continuum, that was me trying Pop Rocks for the first time in my life. That reaction was 100% real. Just putting it out there. How did you, how was that the first time? They don't have that in Maine? (laughs) Apparently not. I was like, oh, what? Everybody was dying laughing because I was like, no. They said, do you want to try it beforehand? And I went, no, 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 I want it to be real. And then I was like, oh. Yeah. They're like, cut, this is too real. This is too <laughs> real. I'm brewing. It's really not attractive. <laughs> okay, sorry, I didn't okay. mean to interrupt. Okay. Favorite screen partner? Oh, man. I know, it's such a mean question. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, uh, I mean, that's, that's literally... Uh, I know, and everybody's going to listen, because everybody in Vancouver listens. And they're all going to be like, oh, my God, she didn't say me. Sesame. Right. I like to no, stir up shit. I am like stressing. <laughs> so I'm just going to go, you know what? I'm going to go out of Vancouver and I'm going to say, because I'm protecting myself here. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do genuinely have a very, very soft spot in my heart for Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I worked with him on oh. and he, he was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful soul. And I just. He was also very, very funny. And so I'm just, I'm going to go with Philip so that my Vancouver people don't hunt me down and beat me with stones and sticks. I mean, they still might, but um, I think the fact that your answer um, is is pretty appropriate. Um, but yeah, I think Br- Brian Markinson is going to come and find you. <laughs> he ran 
actually work with my husband. People are hanging out with people. It's a step. You know, my husband is also in love with Brian Markinson. Paul hates like going to sets and whatever, but he's like, we go to, you know, a lot of film and TV industry parties and he will always, he and Brian will always find each other and drink wine and talk about historical figures and stuff. It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Favorite supervillain? Oh, favorite supervillain. Does this mean I have to choose like a Marvel or one of those or just a villain in general? No, you can choose a villain provided that they are super, super duper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, if you wanted to choose something like Kellogg, I would put Kellogg as a villain, you know, like that counts. Okay, so what I would say is that my favorite villains are those that you want them to get away with it. That's a big thing for me. That is a super villain to me. If you can be a villain and I want you to win, I want you to survive, I want you to not get arrested, I want you to get away, get away with it. Matt Damon and the talented Mr. Ripley is my favorite supervillain ever because I... I've done for him the whole time. He's killing people willy-nilly. And I'm like, please get on that boat with Kate Blanchett and sail away and be fine. He's a super, super villain. You know what I really love about the favorite things uh, segment is that it really provides a lot of insight, you know, because I don't know where these answers are going to take us. So I feel like that one, especially. Um, also, where you were talking, like, oh, right, because she played the daughter of a serial killer. So, mm-hmm. you know, a <laughs> lot going on. A lot going on. A lot going on. Okay. Um, I am going to ask you, because uh, this game was developed by my, uh, well, now 10-year-old, then 9-year-old uh, daughter. And for Mari, this next question is the most important. It's the most revealing. And honestly, I agree. You ready? Oh, God. Yeah. Now I'm scared. Favorite animal? Well, my pit bull's sitting right behind me. She's my favorite animal. <laughs> Hi, Lolo. Hi, Lolo. Look, now oh. she's just in a slightly different sleeping position. Oh, you are just <laughs> the most chill dog. That's a happy, happy dog. The dog, oh, I don't know if everybody heard, dog was snoring before on the podcast. Yeah, sorry about that. She sits, she sits behind so she, I mean, as, as far as a single favorite animal on the entire planet, this one, is, it's right behind me. But um, if I'm going on the greater, you know, atmospheric realm of things, mm-hmm. I, I'm highly, I would have to go, oh gosh, this is, this is the most difficult yeah. Difficult question because I'm thinking lion, but I'm also thinking humpback whale. Mm. I love whales. Maybe I can just say whales in general because I find them amazing. Um, oh God, there are too many. And then sloths are real cute, but that's not going to be my favorite animal. So I'm just going to stick with Lolo. I'm just going to say pit bulls are my favorite. Stick with Lolo. Um, I like all, all the animals that you mentioned. Um, I don't think that there is a wrong answer in that category. Sure, because everybody, if you said something is your favorite animal, even if you chose uh, something that's gross, you'd have to have a reason behind yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, 
the, the, the only hyena, but I'm sure someone hyenas are their favorite. Yeah, I mean, I think the only answer that would concern me, like really concern me, would be, oh, I don't like any animals, or I don't like animals, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, even if I didn't like animals, I'd be smart enough to lie. Come on, you sound like a sociopath. If you're like, I don't like animals. It's a sociopath, but I have one behind me, so you know. Really <laughs> you clearly do. You clearly do. Although now I'm completely doubting everything that you said during this conversation. <laughs> okay, no, we, I'm we, pretty you're you're pretty authentic, is true. Okay, so um, we we started with some time travel. Let us end with some time travel. I've got the continuum, magical chocolate orange here. And we are going to go back in time to the beginning of your career. Uh, and you've got a minute to give yourself some kind of advice. What would you say to yourself? Or would you not say anything at all? That's an option too. That's a very good question. Thank you. Like to have because, one. Because um, when I'm like right now, I'm great. Things are great. I have a great life. We're going to the holiday season. I've worked on some fun projects this year. I'm feeling really good. And I would say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell myself anything. However, I have had some rocky periods in my life. I've had some really dark periods in my life, especially in this career and going through some personal stuff where I would, I would need to know that it was going to be okay. Hmm. And not give any specifics and not say, well, you're going to be in G.I. Joe. You're going to get your show called Continuum. I would never give any specifics. I would literally tell myself, you're, it's going to go in waves and there's going to be good and there's going to be bad. Um, believe in yourself, it will be okay. And just trust in that. And I would keep it simple like that without specifics. But during dark times, really finding the confidence to feel like it's going to be okay. If I didn't have the incredible parents and family and friends that I do, I might be in a very different position right now. And they were so supportive of me. So I've always had that. But I will say, I would just want to tell myself, it's, everything's going to be okay. You're going to land on your feet. I promise. Yeah. And that would be, I'd leave it there. Well, then let's leave it there as well. <laughs> Rachel Nichols, Rachel fucking Nichols, where can <laughs> our fans find you, follow you, celebrate you on the social meds? Okay. So on Twitter, I'm at Rachel Nichols and the number one, do not get me confused with at Rachel underscore Nichols. She's the ESPN reporter. I am not her. Oh, you are so not her. <laughs> <laughs> it's been confusing lately. So my current handle on, on my Twitter account says actress, not ESPN. No. And then um, I very famously lost a bet to Jake Hoffman. And he um, got to name my Instagram handle, which is at Tickle Nichols. <laughs> oh, No. <laughs> and then if you if you want to see more of my dog, she's at Lolo underscore girl with a U. I'm going to put links to all of those social media accounts, including Lolo's, uh, in the footnotes for this episode. It's been Thank a you. fucking delight, Rachel. It's been so um, much fun. Thank you so much. And also pop over to uh, the Wavir Screen Scene Instagram feed um, to see a photo of Rachel and her husband wearing Brian Markinson gear. And um, yeah, and hopefully Brian's reaction will we'll try to, uh, I'll try to whip up a social media post for that. Um, because <laughs> Brian Markinson, we love you. 
Um, and this is the, the fact that this makes you so delightfully uncomfortable is what gives me my joy. And I will not put anybody else's face on anything. It's Ever. really all about you, Brian. All right. <laughs> to, our, to our listeners, please like, subscribe, leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help us find even more listeners. And then we can keep having conversations just like this one. Find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The Weber Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger. I am the only one to blame. And it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support. He was also the one who opened the door before and let the cat in. And to Dane, not Furminger, Devalet for the original music. Weber Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.